Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 30, October 11th through October 17th, 1861. Just as a quick announcement, I know I may have mentioned last week that the next Patreon episode would be posted, and it has, so if you want to check out the description and head to the Patreon, there is a new episode posted there. Last week, we went down to Florida, talked about Braxton Bragg, and talked about the Cherokee involvement with the Confederacy. This week, we'll talk about some early ironclad action in the Mississippi, as well as take a very brief look at world events. I know we will not get into too much detail, but I think we should put everything into context for 1861. First, though, there was a smaller event that I overlooked last week. On October 7th, 1861, Thomas Stonewall Jackson would be promoted to Major General and given command of the Valley District. Now, at the time, there might not have been a super large significance attached to this event, other than I suppose Jackson is rewarded for his good work at First Manassas. It will set us up nicely for the Valley Campaign of 1862, which is regarded as Jackson at his finest. Critics are going to argue that he was facing lesser opponents, including the recently mentioned John C. Fremont. Still, the goal is accomplished, and Jackson's campaign is impressive, to say the least. I will defer to you all to draw our final conclusions when we get to those battles next year. should also note that this move does set up Jackson to make that campaign that much more impressive because before the Valley Campaign of 1862, there will be the Romney Expedition that will happen in early 1862, late 1861, and that expedition does not go quite Jackson's way. So that kind of sets us up for the rebound in the Valley Campaign. So stay tuned for that as well. Moving west, we will talk about an early battle in the Mississippi. Specifically, it would be in contesting the waterways around New Orleans. According to the plan of the North, securing the largest city in the Confederacy was important toward their war goals. Confederate Secretary of the Navy Stephen Mallory had recently appointed one George N. Hollins to command the naval forces in New Orleans. With very little, Hollins would do perhaps the best job one could do in defending the city. Hollins had been in the U.S. Navy since 1814, having been captured by the British in the War of 1812. 
he had served against pirates and in the war with Mexico. The Maryland native would resign to join the Confederate cause at the start of hostilities. He had been operating in the Chesapeake when reassigned by Mallory. Hollins would take a small group of riverboats that were either contributed or bought for the cause to create a mosquito fleet of small vessels to defend the mouth of the Mississippi River. Now, if we are unfamiliar with the geography of that river around New Orleans, there is a place called the Head of Passes, where the river has several branches that empty out into the ocean. This would be the site of one of the first actions on the Mississippi River. The Union blockade has been increasing in strength and effectiveness, so much so that there had been some forays up into the Head of Passes. There were few ships in the Confederate Navy who could shelter potential blockade runners. The CSS Ivy, who was a converted privateer armed with a prized Whitworth gun, was anchored along with the CSS Sumter at Head of Passes in order to dissuade the Union vessels. There actually had been an attempt to seize the Ivy by one David Dixon Porter, and I think this would be a good time to introduce the Yankee Admiral. Porter was born the son of Commodore David Porter, who served in the War of 1812 and 1813. As a young man, he served in the Mexican Navy briefly before becoming a midshipman in the United States Navy. Crazily enough, this actually occurred during a period in which his father had resigned from the United States Navy briefly and had become a high-level commander in the Mexican Navy. This would have been a period of time where Mexico is seeking their independence from Spain, and obviously before hostilities would have increased between the United States and Mexico. So this was not quite as surprising of a move. David would actually be involved in a naval battle that would see his cousin killed and himself slightly wounded with a Spanish vessel. Porter would remain in the Navy, serving in the attack on Veracruz during the Mexican War. It was Porter who was in command of the USS Powhatan, if you recall, the ship that had been redirected to Fort Pickens during the expedition to relieve Fort Sumter. And now we should all understand exactly what that means, having been introduced to all of those things. Porter's contribution to the war effort is often overlooked. He is able to coordinate effectively with Ulysses Grant during the Vicksburg campaign, playing a large part in the taking of that city. After the war, he will become the superintendent of the U.S. Naval Academy, where he made several reforms. He would die at the age of 77 in 1891. In 1861, his plan would be foiled by an alerted rebel sentry 
keeping him from obtaining the prize of the CSS Ivy. In October of 1861, a squadron commanded by a career naval officer, John Pope, would attempt to set up a fortification at the head of passes. Pope's ships would briefly come under fire by the lone Whitworth gun and then withdraw. Intentions of the Federals were clear not only to the Confederate Navy, but also the concerned citizens of New Orleans. Hollins would formulate a plan to strike Pope and hopefully disperse the ships back out into the open ocean. To do this, he would need the Mosquito Fleet as well as a new weapon in his arsenal, the CSS Manassas. This vessel was a converted tug with armored plating that actually had been declined by Mallory and Jefferson Davis. Its owner had requested funding from the good people of New Orleans instead. The Manassas was a cigar-shaped vessel with a ram and one cannon. Collins would have to seize the vessel for his intended operation, as John Stevenson, the owner, wanted the vessel for a potential profit, returning back out into the ocean as a privateer. Also, as you could probably imagine, he was not cool with the Confederate Navy after their initial rejection. A Confederate crew would eventually force Stevenson and his privateers off the ship. Collins would move his ragtag group of ships into position on October 11, 1861. He had eight vessels, the most impressive of which was armed with only eight cannon. In fact, the Confederates had only 22 cannon, as opposed to the 55 among four Union ships. Still, they would try to dislodge the enemy from their position. The plan was simple. The Manassas would steam ahead to ram a potential target and fire a rocket to let the remainder of the ships know of success. Fire rafts that had two platforms connected via a chain would be floated down the river. The chain would make it so both platforms would wrap around the Union vessels and catch fire to the ship. This was an interesting part of the soon-to-be-antiquated wooden naval vessels. Fire was an issue. Fire ships and fire rafts a concern. This would be something that the ironclads and future battleships would not have to worry about. In the early morning hours of October 12, 1861, the CSS Manassas would steam out toward its target. Pope had not posted any sentries to warn of an enemy advance. He was sort of correct in assuming that the rebel vessels were not as strong as his four ships. The CSS Manassas was able to steam undetected, and by the time an alarm was raised, would still successfully ram the USS Richmond. Despite the hit, the damage was manageable, but the damage to the ram would remove the Manassas from contributing any further hits. Fire rafts were released, but Pope would see the danger and order his vessels to raise anchor and escape. More Confederate ships would join in the action and fire on the retreating Yankees with little effect. 
we can see the effectiveness of the iron armor on the CSS Manassas because there were at least three hits on the disabled ship, which did little damage. Two Union vessels, including the USS Richmond, which was the flagship of Pope, would run aground in the confusion. The smaller Confederate ships would take shots at the disabled enemy, but would do no damage. Briefly, there was confusion that resulted in the abandoning of the USS Preble, the other grounded ship. Hollins would see that there would be nothing more his forces could do against a larger enemy. A 50-gun frigate sat waiting in deeper waters that would love to have had his riverboats come into range. Satisfied with his work, Hollins commanded a withdrawal to New Orleans. All in all, there were no casualties. The Confederates were able to destroy any progress made on the fort intended for head of passes. In addition, they captured some supplies and a ship loaded with coal. So, at little cost, Hollins had accomplished his goal. New Orleans would receive a much-needed boost in morale. But, the Union blockade would continue to grow, and if anything, the U.S. Navy would realize that they would need greater numbers for the capture of the key Confederate city. Let's move away from the Mississippi River Valley and move abroad for a nice overlook of world events in 1861. I know we will not be getting into everything, but at least this will give us something to go off of. Before we leave the United States, let's take a peek at West to the conclusion of something I think we may have mentioned, but did not get too much detail in. In the latter portion of 1861, the Pony Express will end. Having begun in 1860, I don't think it is widely known how short-lived the venture was, for that matter. For those of us who do not know, the Pony Express was a relay system with various stations where riders would travel to deliver newspapers, telegrams, and letters to the West. While Bill Hickok worked for the Pony Express delivering mail out in the West. It was for a time the only thing that would connect the newly acquired territory to the East. It's also a good talisman for the changing times. The telegraph will take over for the Pony Express. Eventually, the telegrams would be delivered from the ends of the ever-expanding telegraph until they were fully connected and there was no longer a need for the dangerous travel. In Mexico, Benito Juarez will be formally elected president on June 15th. This would be after a conflict between liberals and conservatives, of which Juarez was a liberal. He would remain president until 1872. Important to the zeitgeist of Mexico, he would be president in exile during the French invasion and reign of Maximilian. He has become a symbol against foreign intervention. During his presidency, at one point, he stops the payment of foreign debt. 
if we work down into South America, the Argentines are still fighting a civil war, which will last until 1880. This war pitted centralized forces who supported the usage of Buenos Aires as a primary center for exportation versus Unitarian forces, who obviously did not want Buenos Aires to be given preferential treatment. In nearby Uruguay, the first industrialized meatpacking plant is created in the 1861 year. Russia will come into conflict with Japan, which will start sour relations. We mentioned that the acquisition of a better port was a key goal for the Russians, who would be encroaching toward Korea. Eventually, the Japanese, who at this point have not modernized completely, will be fighting back, resulting in the surprising outcome of the Russo-Japanese War, in which the Japanese, especially the Navy, thrashed the Russians in an unpopular war that was held to an end by Theodore Roosevelt. Teddy would actually win the Nobel Peace Prize as a result. More interesting in terms of Russia was an event you most likely learned about in history class, the emancipation of the serfs. Russia still had serfs in the 1860s, a bit backwards, yes. Tsar Alexander II would liberate the serfs, and although that sounds nice, it really was not an ideal system. The idea had come from liberal politicians who had sought reform after the defeat in the Crimean War we talked about. There needed to be changes so that Russia could catch up to the rest of Europe. Elimination of serfdom was high on that list. The Russian people were now free to own land as well as marry without consent from the landholders, which is something straight out of the Middle Ages, if you ask me. Although liberated, there was a two-year transition period, as well as the addition of fees for usage of lands that had formerly been public, but instead had been given to the major landholders. These landholders were also owed payment by the former serfs, now tenants, which would lead to problems because the farmers would be more focused on making their payments to the landholders as opposed to providing for themselves or their families. The land allotted to them was often not sufficient for survival. It is interesting that this transition would show some similarities with the end of the American Civil War and the experience of former slaves. Italy will be going through unification in the 1860s. Remember, we mentioned the famous revolutionary Garibaldi and how mercenaries like Roberto Wheat were seeking to join him. Italy would not be fully united under the Kingdom of Italy until 1870. During 1861, there would still be a growing Kingdom of Italy, but still have territory controlled by the Austrians, whom the Italians had been fighting against in the Wars of Independence. 
Napoleon III had sent French troops in Italy to protect the Papal States. By the way, speaking of Napoleon III, he would be attempting to expand his empire in Vietnam at this point. I bet you also did not know that the French will come into conflict with the Chinese as well. It would not be until the Franco-Prussian War that he would withdraw these troops, which would speed the process of unification in Italy. I think we can hang it up there for today. We welcome Jackson to his command in the valley. We also talked about the Battle of the Head of Passes, which was some naval action on the Mississippi River. We also got a nice look at what's been going on outside of the United States in 1861. Next week, we will get into two battles, one in Kentucky and the other in Northern Virginia. That will continue to spell disaster for Union field armies in the first year of the war. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Post in the description, there should be a link to the website, Patreon and Venmo. Check out the Patreon. There is a new episode posted for the month of October. We have a, a good handful out there. So if it's something that would interest you for some extra content as well as some support of the show as well, that will certainly be appreciated. Feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.